Welcome to KCADV Certification Series Module 2, Part B, Adverse Child Experiences in Adult Survivors. We hope you listen to the materials or read the materials that have been sent to you, or you can check out certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome to KCADV Certification Series, Module 2. I have Jen Johnson here with me today, and we had been talking a little bit about trauma, but we wanted to come back because we just really thought it was important that folks understood the impact that experiences in childhood can have on adult survivors of intimate partner violence. And so we just want to bring Jen back in to talk a little bit about ACE scores, what that resiliency, and how those experiences at a younger age can kind of show up in later life. Absolutely. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the different ways that trauma affects people, but I think especially because there's sort of a buzzword around ACEs lately, it seemed like it might be a good idea to to dig back into that a little bit. So ACEs stand for Adverse Childhood Experiences. It's something that really probably in the last five to 10 years, we've started to, there's been a lot more research into that and growing understanding of the ways that childhood trauma impacts us. And so that includes a range of mental and physical health effects that can be long-term. So, so yeah, I just want to dig back into that a little more. I'm glad, you know, even if you're not a program that does a score, some do and some don't, I think, and it might depend on what your position is with a program. But one of the things that I often hear newer advocates, it's like, I don't want to ask questions if I'm not going to do something with it, or I'm not skilled to be in a place where I can deal with person's past childhood trauma or their substance use or their mental health. And so why are you asking me to kind of dig in? And I think if we can begin to look at, it's hard to advocate and it's hard to support and it's hard to prepare for future plans, goal plans, health, safety, wellness, if we don't have the full picture. There's a respect, there's an importance of gathering people's histories. And it's not just being nosy. And it's not just, it's not, it has purpose behind it. And so if we can begin to be aware of those adverse childhood experiences, even again, if we're doing the test, we're just aware as advocates and knowing how that can play out, it can robustly change how we do future coping, goal planning, preparation, safety planning, all of those kind of pieces. Yeah. And I think one of the things that as we were talking earlier that really kind of jumped out to me, you know, a lot of times we'll interact with survivors and you may have one survivor that you feel like is just kind of a hot mess, right? You might interact with somebody that is all over the place and they're really emotional and they have a hard time with organizing things and they may seem to have a higher need. And then you may interact with another survivor who, you know, for all intents and purposes, seems to have it together. And, but I think it really, it prompted me to sort of bring this up again, because what is visible on the exterior doesn't always necessarily totally reflect what's going on inside. So there are some folks in part because of if they've had what sometimes gets called complex developmental trauma. So it's another kind of term that you might hear alongside ACEs. It's a fancy way of saying if during your very young developmental years, you've had a lot of traumatic experiences, may not have had protective and safe adults in your life. A lot of folks who appear to be very, very high achieving adults have actually had a lot of complex developmental trauma. So you may see somebody who who appears to be functioning very well, and that in itself can be a trauma response. 
So for example, there are some folks who it's not always a function of trauma, but it can be, you know, you may have one person in a family who is always the one that kind of takes on whatever the tasks are. They're the caretaker for other family members. They're all, you know, all of this stuff. So I think it's just important to recognize that even the survivors that we interact with who, who may appear to be doing okay, I think if we get comfortable with you know, exploring with them a little bit about how things are. And this, what the other thing I hope people hear is this is not about telling survivors that they're not fine if they are really fine, right? So sometimes you have survivors who really are in a much better place than they've been in a long time because they're in a safe space. But you may also have people who, as a way of not dealing with, not thinking about, not getting stuck in the trauma of what's been happening, they go to only dealing with very practical things. So you might have like a star safety planner. (laughs) They can go through all of this stuff with you in detail, but there might be a lot more tumultuous stuff happening for them than what meets the eye. So this is a little bit of the challenge that I have for folks that are kind of, you know, and again, even seasoned staff, but kind of broaching this work or, or delving into this work is don't presume you know what's going on and don't fall into the trap. And I've seen many folks do this. I've certainly have done it myself, that you kind of just let go of the person who seems to be doing really well and getting it all together because you're trying to focus on maybe the other folks that are just struggling outwardly a little bit more. And so your attention tends to go there. And then all of a sudden, that person that seemed to have everything kind of going for him was working their goal plan, seemed to be fine, very self-sufficient. All those pieces kind of throws you for a loop because here it comes. And maybe it's because they're safe for once in their life and they're beginning to right. let their guard down. They're beginning to to build that trust, but it sometimes really can throw us. And so you often have a spectrum of how folks can experience trauma and how they and how they how that outward faces. And so we have a tendency sometimes to avoid the problem folks, right? I don't know what to do. I can't yeah. deal with them today. Like yeah. they're messy. Yeah. And then we tend to a- avoid the kind of good, quiet client because they're just, they you know, we right. say hello, but yeah. they seem all right. Yeah. And so how do we make sure that we're checking in? And if we really don't know, right? At first, we just don't know. Right. What's the advice to new advocates to to open up that conversation? Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, sometimes, and this is often not going to be something that you get into in your very, you know, first conversation, perhaps. This may be something that you are going to build a relationship with a survivor over time. And as you observe their own patterns, you know, I think it's fine to say, you know, you seem like you're doing really well. These, you know, to, and I think really even doing some of that strengths based stuff can be really important. And also alongside that to sort of take a moment and say, you know, is there anything that we haven't gotten to talk about that you would like some space to talk about? Or even to say out loud, you know, I know sometimes folks are so used to having to deal with chaos and and they've had to take care of things. But this is a space where if you want to talk about some stuff, we can. Or if there is any additional support that we can layer in, we can. And it's okay to not be okay if that's true for you. That's a scary thing, I think. I'll sometimes hear, you know, residents at shelter kind of go, I can't go there because I'm afraid the The floodgates are going to open, right? We've all heard that terminology. I'm afraid of letting that go. And I do think we need to trust that survivors know when they're they're feeling safe and they're ready to share. Yep. I think that goes back to a conversation we had in the in the previous podcast of re-traumatizing. You're not going to re-traumatize by asking the question, right. but respect the person, you know, to be able to share and give the permission and safe space for them to be able to do that. Is there some 
if we're not doing an ACE assessment, but we're wanting to kind of dig in, is there certain questions we should be asking as we're gathering history, we're collecting history, and we are going beyond just what brought them in the door, the immediate intimate partner, where we want to have a more colorful experience as to what's going on. Is there certain questions that maybe we could ask that brings up some of those experiences? Yeah. I will say, so for us, and this is a little bit different because we, so we have the sexual violence resource center that I'm at. We've got therapists that are also in-house. So this is, it's a little bit different and a little tricky because we may route people directly into therapy, or in some cases, that's exactly what they have sought out our support for. But having said that, I do think some of this translates. So we'll ask some questions around something as simple as like, you know, so you've described some symptoms that you're having. How long would you say you've been feeling that way? Or how long do you think you've kind of been experiencing that? And sometimes you'll have folks who will say, I don't remember ever not feeling that way, right? Or you may have somebody else who says, well, really only for about the last year. That's when things got really bad. That's their normal, right? That's interesting. Yes. And so a lot of times, if you've got folks who are saying, you know, I don't remember ever not feeling anxious or on edge or uncertain or whatever, all of this stuff, then that might be a good indicator that person probably has some stuff from childhood they might also want to explore. I think the other thing, and Diane, I think you and I have talked about this too, is that we should always only really be asking questions if we are prepared to do something with the answer, (laughs) right? And so I'm not an advocate for, you know, coming up with a big long list of very detailed questions about ACEs if you're not necessarily going to do anything differently with that. But I do think it's a matter of creating space, for example, to also say, you know, a lot of times when people have grown up in unstable homes or if they experienced abuse as children, that also is a risk factor for domestic and sexual violence in the future, right? And so all of these different kinds of traumas. So just knowing that, it can help us better understand what brings people to where they are. And so, yeah, so I think a simple question about how long have you been struggling with the things that you feel like you're struggling with? And then honestly, I think sometimes just a a question about like, is there anything, you know, obviously a lot of our focus, for example, if I was saying this in shelter, I would say a lot of our focus in shelter is on the here and now and making sure that we're able to get you safe and make sure that we're able to get you into a place of self-sufficiency and meeting the goals that you identify for yourself. But in addition to that, we are also able to connect people to other service providers. And so One of the things that we often find survivors might need is connection to a therapist or connection to other groups or connection to other types of things. So can we explore some of this together? And so I think in order for those questions to be purposeful, it doesn't have to mean that you have like a resource in-house to meet the need, right? We ask lots of other questions for resources that we would direct people to externally, right? right? Like we'll connect people with food stamps. We'll connect people with housing assistance. We don't necessarily have that in-house, but we're connecting them to other resources. So I think starting to look at mental health as one more resource that we're connecting people to is super important. And I think then the other piece that I would kind of throw in, in terms of like, well, now what? If If I know that this person may have childhood trauma, What am I going to do differently with that? I think a lot of it, it's not even so much just what you're going to do differently. It's how you understand that person's experience, right? And so if I can understand that this person who seems to have it all together had to learn at age five to take care of her siblings or how to tiptoe around dad's outbursts, that informs how she shows up with me. And 
understanding that can be really important. It, absolutely. And isn't that critical when you are, again, doing kind of life plan, goal plan, whatever that is, if you can foresee yeah. to a degree along with them, obstacles that might arise, responses that might arise when things go awry, then you can, I, I don't know, then, then you can sort of plan for things. That Absolutely. was sort of a simple answer, but you yeah. can sort of plan for things. And if you don't know those things that might trigger or trip up somebody or hiccup somebody, if you don't know it, yeah. then you can't. But it, it's so empowering for a person to work with them and go, this is why this might happen. And when these things occur, this might be the response. That's perfectly normal. What do we do when that happens? Yeah. I think being able to predict to some extent. And it's and, and when I say predict, I don't mean like that you're necessarily going to know exactly what's going to happen for any given person, but to be able to give voice to that and to even almost preemptively normalize it for a survivor. You know, these are some of the things that survivors experience. And so, you know, if this is the first time that you felt like you're safe in a really long time and you start to feel stuff that you haven't felt for a really long time, that's normal. You know, if you're used to being a perfectionist and getting everything right, and you start to struggle with wondering how you got here and what you did wrong, that's normal, you know? And so just, I think, giving folks a little bit of information, because we are, and you and I have talked about this as well, we are, at the same time that we're advocates, we're also educators, both in the community, but also with the individual survivors that we're working with. A lot of times we can give them information that gives maybe puts words to an experience that they understand very well, but didn't think that anybody else did, or they felt very alone in. And they may not, even though they may know exactly what's happened up to now, or be experts in that, they may not know what's going to happen next. And so I think we can give people, you know, a sense of, of not being alone, a sense of not being weird or abnormal or broken. And that in and of itself helps, I think, to overcome the messages that the abuser often has sent, which is that you're abnormal, you're alone, you have no value, you know, like all of those really destructive messages that we can start to counteract. I have found something kind of popped in my mind as you were talking, and it's, I think it definitely fits the, the conversation, but I sometimes see survivors really get down on themselves when things go wrong. And there's a lot of self blame. And I think it's always good to remind folks that Life in itself is messy. People in the best jobs, relationships, parent, whatever, housing, whatever, their lives get messy. We get flat tires. We lose jobs. We have health issues. We have breakups. We have those things. It's how we build up the strength to be able to respond. I sometimes see folks feel that they're made it when those things don't happen to them anymore. Those things happen to everybody. Forever. Forever, (laughs) right? You know, I spill coffee on myself in the car, driving to work, and, you know. So those things happen all the time, but it's building up the capacity to be able to get through it and to not throw your whole day into, you know, a quagmire. And so, again, what are those things that can kind of trip you up knowing that you're bringing this whole you, childhood you, response you, I've got to be the fixer, I've got to do, I have to be all this, beginning to be aware of that might really prepare folks for when they get the apartment and life happens and they can just deflate, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think too, because we've been talking a little bit about how for folks who tend to kind of over-function, it can be a real challenge. But it also makes me think, even as you were saying that, for those people who feel like they've been labeled as the mess, as the hot mess, right? That 
once they get to a place where it's possible, some stability might be possible. And so much of their ability to achieve that, it is very much connected to, can I believe that I am capable of it? If I've been told for how many years or decades in some cases that I'm just a hot mess, and maybe I've even functioned as a hot mess. But again, that is also connected often to that childhood stuff where like maybe that's the only way that you got your needs met as a kid is to be the one that needed taken care of, to be the one that couldn't do the things for yourself. So I don't know. I think just knowing that either way that people show up and anywhere in between, you know, you were speaking to that ability to kind of bounce back. And so much of that is just connected to this concept of resiliency. So we talk a lot about trauma. We talk a lot about how trauma can negatively affect us. But then the flip side of that is people are capable of overcoming immense, immense trauma, you know, overcoming things that when we look at it and we often say, oh, that's terrible when it's happening to somebody else, but we can manage to survive those things and come through it. And so resiliency is so much about, it's not about bad things not happening. It's about us building the skills and the tools and having adequate support to do that so that we then can bounce back in the future even better than we may have in the past. So the good news about trauma is that surviving it actually does in and of itself to some extent help us build our resiliency. Although I don't want to dive too deeply into this, I think if it's something that folks are interested in learning more about, that this concept of us having some control over. So, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that trauma changes our brains and it tra- changes things about our chemical makeup. It changes all kinds of stuff. But there's also another concept called neuroplasticity that basically means, again, that we then can sort of rebuild those things. We can then consciously influence how we move forward in that way. So if you're interested, there's some really cool like YouTube videos and other little quick clips that if you want to feel hopeful about the the effects of trauma, I think neuroplasticity is a really, it's a very optimistic piece. And knowing that folks are, I'm sure any advocate to, you know, who has been in the work for more than five minutes can attest to how incredibly resilient survivors are, right? Absolutely. You know, I always like staff to sort of pause for a little bit because if you remember what a person looked like maybe three weeks ago, two weeks ago when they walked into the building and then see where they are in a, you know, that duration of time, it's an immense difference. And we used to have the, the pleasure of Bob Walker, who was a professor up at the University of Kentucky, did a lot of work on brain and brain impact and elasticity and, and trauma impact. And so, yes, if you like to delve deep into the science of it, it really is a fascinating subject. But You know, a lot of things, looking at your programming to build those safe spaces, to build small successes, those small tasks, finding alternatives for things for people for when they're coping can really begin to readjust and make up maybe for some of the experience that people have had in their past and buffer up. I don't know if that's the right word, but their resiliency for future, because that's what we want, right? We want folks to be able to leave on this path. They're not going to be 100% in three months, but- To leave on this path that that really can be the goal. I can withstand healthily good coping mechanisms, what might be coming my way. And we don't really have time for this, but don't forget the littles, right? So we've got littles in our program. And so what are some things that we can do to mitigate those ACEs that might be coming their way? So absolutely. So those mentors, those coaching, those loving moments, making special moments for them and shelter that they can carry that with them. Yeah. It's critical for their well-being. 
And, and this might be a sort of, again, a hopeful note to end on, but there's a lot of evidence that even when we have adverse experiences as kiddos, when we have adults in our lives who can then sort of layer in support and make sure that we're getting our needs met, it's not about never having bad things happen. It's about learning how to cope with those things and learning that the world is not inherently a dangerous place necessarily, that there are ways that we can find our way through and that there are people who will help us do that. And so as advocates, I think we really absolutely can be the difference for for kiddos who are there in terms of how they see themselves moving forward. I think that's a perfect note to sort of end on. And thank you so much for coming back and, and having that conversation with us. And um, we really appreciate you all tuning in and uh, being part of KCADB certification series. It's really important work that we're doing. And I applaud all of you for, for your commitment to this. So thanks. Thank you all. Yeah. KCADV Certification Series. You're listening to Module 2, Trauma in the Context of Domestic Violence Advocacy. We hope you listen and read the materials that have been sent to you, or you may visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome everyone to KCADV Certification Series. This is Module 2, Thinking About Trauma in the Context of Domestic Violence Advocacy, an Integrated Approach. And with us, I have Jen Johnson, who is with Ampersand, the sexual assault program serving Central Kentucky, to kind of guide us through this conversation. So welcome, Jen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm lucky I get to hang out with Diane pretty yeah, frequently it's nice in Lexington. To have, yeah. Yes, I know. I know. When I was talking to Lisa about planning, it was like, I know all these people yeah. that are doing the modules, and it's making me happy. Some I hadn't seen in a while, but we've been working a little bit together lately. So yeah, welcome. So this is a pretty robust topic conversation as you and I were just talking before coming on trauma-informed care certainly is the buzzword and we hear it in almost everything we do programs are going back and reevaluating what they do is it in a trauma-informed lens as you said I think a little bit prior to I think a lot of us have been doing this work already but now we have a little more substance as to the whys behind it and so I hope that this next half hour to an hour conversation kind of shed some light onto that. So just to sort of start, when I say the words individual trauma and collective and historical trauma, what is that sort of bringing up and what should we take away from that? Yeah, I think it's super important to know that those two things are almost inextricable from each other, right? And so we can talk about individual trauma, which on the surface is in reference to a particular event that happens to a person, right? But then when you talk about collective and historical trauma, that is often trauma that has happened to groups of people on the basis of their identities, but people still experience it as individuals, right? And so I think just recognizing that all of these different kinds of traumas and the ways that we respond to them are interconnected. Um, And so, you know, because 
trauma doesn't happen to people in a vacuum. It doesn't happen to a blank slate. It happens to a human being who has identities like their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, their immigration status, all of these other things. And so all of that plays in together to, to some extent, determine what is the effect on that person and then what is the effect on their communities as well. And so knowing that a lot of the folks that will be tuning into this are probably newer in the work, I think as we're just beginning to grapple with that conversation and knowing that our experiences and what we sort of bring into our advocacy is is more limited. We talked a lot about in previous podcasts of, of listening a great deal with, with folks. And I, I know that's sort of a given, but sometimes we feel we're kind of fix it people, we have a tendency to step in and fix and goal plan and check things off and do that. So really creating time to build relationship and trust with folks. And the other piece that I think when you're talking about collective and historical trauma, if it's not your experience as an advocate, we sometimes can miss those things. It's not as intentional. We just weren't even thinking about it. And a simple example, I think, is it's often hard, I think, for a man to understand the experience of the collective on women, right? It's just... I, I've just lived it. My stories live it. My my lens and my gaze just brings all of that up with me. And yeah. it's really difficult to connect with that if that is not your lived and shared experiences. Yeah. So any advice to new advocates as they're working with people to not overlook the importance of historical and contextual trauma? Oh, such a good question. So I think a big part of it is about, you know, you you already sort of highlighted this, the concept of of deep listening. But the other piece that I would really sort of emphasize too is to to walk in with as few assumptions as it's possible to have. You know, we're human beings and we all have biases. We all have blind spots in our own lived experiences. But I think that's why it's so important to create space, to hear what each and every survivor, and, and especially in our roles as advocates, because so much of what we do is directed towards helping individual survivors to be empowered, to find their own healing, to figure out what works for them. And we can get into that mode of like, okay, I got to check this box. I got to do this list. I got to do, you know, and and some of that's difficult to, to get around. It's just the nature of the beast in terms of nonprofit work, in terms of all kinds of other stuff. But so I think a big piece of it is know what our biases are, to the extent that that's possible, be open open to hearing other folks kind of highlight that's that hard for work, us. It is, it? yeah, that is hard work. We've talked about that a little bit too, of really having a trusted mentor, support, coaching, whatever that system, colleagues, was, colleagues to feed that back and be open and vulnerable to it because we can get really defensive. That's yeah. not me. I didn't mean that. Or, right. Yeah, right. I think it's important. And also, I do think sometimes this sounds you know, kind of trite, but I think really understanding that survivors are our teachers as well. And so each and every person that I interact with, I should be walking into that with the assumption that there's something that I have to learn from this interaction. I'm not this, you know, all-knowing being who just has solutions to this person's problems. And I think you you already spoke to like, we tend to be people who want to fix things. We want to make it better. And I think that comes from a really good place. And when you do it in partnership with a survivor, then it can be a really beautiful process. But if we walk into something, assuming that we know what's best, assuming that we know what they need, we can often end up creating more trauma and more harm 
even with good intentions. That's a really great philosophy because the other piece that I think programs really attempt to do is to check themselves on having power over people, right? This is a crime of or an abuse of power and control over another individual. So if we set up our programs as always having power over, I'm in the position of teaching the professional, you're in the position of receiving and, and taking that in. But if we can have that dual kind of partnership, learn from one another and ask, I think that can go a long way in building the relationship and building the trust between advocate and survivor. I think also, you know, reaching out to survivors too for feedback on the program itself can be amazingly helpful. Do we have systems set up into how we do intakes on folks, how we answer the crisis line, how we set up our our community living space, our court advocacy, whatever that may be? Do we have systems set up to be power over, which can be really beneficial? I think it's it's huge to be open to and willing to learn individually from survivors and also collectively, like from survivors as a class, as a group, and to learn about our programs and what we're doing well and what we could do better. You know, if we were doing things now the same way that I was doing things when I started at 10 years ago, we'd be missing the mark entirely. And so much of what evolves is because we learn from the survivors that we work with. So, but you have to be open to doing that. You missed the previous podcast that we were recording and I brought back, I went way back, Jen. I went way back to Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. Yes, you did. I did. I went way back. And so in that same thing of asking survivors, if you're not familiar with Ellen Pence, please check out Ellen Pence because how we got all about power and control wheel, different forms of abuse, not just looking at physical, but looking at how people experience power and control was all from let's go ask the survivors, right? We sometimes sit and and twirl around and think about things. And then somebody usually brilliantly about 45 minutes into the conversation exactly goes, huh, maybe we should go ask ask. the survivors. Yeah. Have we thought about asking? Exactly. So always go back and make sure that we're reflecting, you know, programs and, and not assuming. I love that you brought that language up too. So trauma in the context of domestic violence, there was a few pieces that you kind of highlighted as I was looking through the materials, interpersonal trauma, cumulative burden, ongoing risk, social betrayal. Is there? Can you talk a little bit about those topics? Yeah. I think especially in the context of, of things like domestic and sexual violence, there are some things that can be really critical to know that, that can make these forms of trauma somewhat unique. And so- The first is that it is an interpersonal act of violence or ongoing acts of violence in most cases. And so knowing that because of that, it breaks down people's trust often. It breaks down, and I think the thing that can be most difficult is not just that it breaks down a person's ability to trust others, but an ability to trust themselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of times survivors doubt their judgment. If this was a person that I cared about, I let them into my life. I let them around my kids. You know, they seemed good in all these different ways. And so I think the impact of that on on future interpersonal relationships and also on survivors' ability to trust their own judgment and their own boundaries is a huge piece of it. That piece of it in terms of being an intimate and a social betrayal is also so critical because, you know, domestic violence is at the hands of a person who is supposed to be my, often my closest friend, my best confidant, my partner, you know, the person that I can turn to when all else fails. 
And, and it may start that way. It may appear that way. And, and then we learn that, that that intimacy that was built is now used as a tool to exercise power and control over us. And so I think that's a huge piece of what makes it feel different. You know, sometimes when I go out, I train a lot of folks in other fields as well around issues related to violence. And so one of the things I'll do, especially if I'm training law enforcement, we'll talk about, you know, a natural disaster is a trauma. A car accident is a trauma. But we often experience them very differently because it's not one person hurting another person knowingly, intentionally, repeatedly. We can often look at those things and sort of chalk it up to being an act of God, you know, wrong time, wrong place, that kind of stuff. Whereas with domestic violence, I think that the ongoing pattern and that the the push and pull, the gaslighting, the making you doubt your own memory of things, like all of that stuff is just such a, a betrayal of sort of the core of who we are as people. So I think that is a, another really big piece kind of already have spoken to the cumulative burden piece where it is, you know, if it was just one thing that happened one time, it would be bad enough, but it almost never is one thing that happens just one time. Um, and so when you're talking about, you know, often years of escalating abuse that may start on some of those pieces of when you, you were talking about the power and right. control wheel, you know, it might just be isolating you from your friends and making you doubt your, you know, who else is on your team and criticizing what you wear a little bit and, you know, all of that kind of stuff until eventually you don't have a, your bank card anymore and you have no idea how your bills are paid and you're not allowed to drive anywhere. And, and you're like, how did I get here? How did we get here? Yes. Yeah. So I think just knowing that and recognizing that each of those things are, they are a different kind of injury to the individual survivor. And each one of them, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, and sometimes it's a lot more than a paper cut for sure. But I think just knowing that and that, you know, if it was just one small thing at a time, maybe. And And I also think that's how people grow accustomed to the abuse that they encounter and it becomes normalized and it's become normalized as a culture as well in many ways. So, so yeah. And then when it comes to ongoing risk, of course, knowing that like for the most part, if somebody survives, you know, tornado, for example, odds are you're probably not going to face another one of those unless you live in Oklahoma or something else, you know, but for the most part, our traumas, those other types of traumas that are not interpersonal in nature, they're often a one-off experience. Whereas with domestic violence, there's an ongoing risk and it's often very difficult to determine exactly, you know, what's the next thing going to be, right? And so, and we learn from survivors, they can tell you like, oh, if if they've been doing X, Y, or Z and I step just the wrong way and, you know, survivors are incredibly attuned yes. to what the risk is on any given day, on any given moment, typically. But that, I think, is such an illustration of how pervasive it becomes in the life of the survivor as well. They see the rhythms and the patterns, don't they? They begin to know how that sort of plays out. When you talked about social betrayal, I just sort of wanted to add this one piece. It It was a little bit of an aha moment for me because I think so many times people do, survivors begin to doubt themselves. They doubt their 
judgment. They're, so a lot of advocacy work is reframing that, reframing their resiliency, reframing their being in tune, reframing how they do that, how they experienced it, and, and their amazing ability to have survived through it. But one of the hard pieces, I think, is that dichotomy of their partner, you know, being supportive and best friend and all this over here. And then how did this person then become this, you know, kind of monstrous individual abusive personality here? And again, to bring up Ellen Pence, I think that's why it popped in my head. I watched a training that she had given a long time ago, but she said, that is just as much the abuse as the as the other. And it really helped me because I kind of did in my own way sort of divide the two people, you know, like they have good times, they have good moments and they have bad moments. And she was very, you know, the good moments feed into the ability to maintain the power and control. It is just as calculating, just as manipulative, just as intentional as the bad. And so, you know, I don't mean to 100% make every abuser perpetrator the same. But when I started looking at that, it really helped me sort of understand the dynamics that were being played out in abusive uh, relationships. And I think it was helpful to the victim too, because there was a guilt that sometimes would come in. And if you begin to look at that as a strategy, the kindness being a strategy, I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. That, it makes me think too, that also kind of expands out beyond just the individual because so often we hear about perpetrators and abusers who are really well liked in the community, right? And so they're like charismatic and successful and, you know, like, well, he, everybody over here really likes this guy, right? And so much the same as the good moments with that individual survivor are a tactic of the abuse, so is that external persona because it's becomes unbelievable to other people often that a person who is that gregarious and kind and whatever could ever be this other thing behind closed doors, you know? So they can hide in plain sight. Yes. As a brilliant person just said to me earlier today. Yes. Yeah. So knowing the trauma that is experienced by survivors, what does it mean to be trauma informed and what is the importance of that as an advocate? Yeah. So I think one of the the biggest things, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this before, like you mentioned, that much of what it means to be trauma-informed is about doing things that we've been doing for a long time anyway, but we just know more about the why now. But I think recognizing that trauma is pervasive and it can have deep and lasting effects on survivors. I think sometimes if we don't understand that trauma actually, it like physiologically changes our brains. <laughs> it changes what chemicals are produced and released. It changes the actual structures in the brain grow and shrink according to the trauma that we have experienced. So I think understanding that this isn't, you know, trauma is not just some imaginary foo-foo, you know, hippie concept. There's There's some scientific evidence that actually shows us what does it do to the body and to the brain. And the flip side of that, because I think sometimes it can be really depressing to just talk about trauma like, oh, this really, really messes us up sometimes. But the flip side of that is that we also, once we get out of those situations and and we've achieved some level of safety and predictability and control over our lives again, we can also overcome and readjust those things. So we can do things that also regrow those structures of the brain and, and, you know, shift how we're, so it's, I think that's the other really hopeful piece about that. One of the things that I think is super important to know as well, and why, why even that piece around listening 
cannot be overestimated is that because being in a safe space and having someone who supports you and believes you, there's, again, evidence that that is part of what helps us to get out of that fight, flight, and freeze response. It's part of what allows our brains to just chill out a little bit and start to recover and find some semblance of normalcy again. So I think a big part of it is about just recognizing the true, deep, and lasting impact of trauma that it's so individualized as well. I think that's one thing that um, sometimes people don't, you know, you might talk to one survivor who will say the worst thing about it all was this particular name that he called me and I knew what it meant and nobody else did. And everybody thought I was being silly or crazy or whatever, right? And so there might be one survivor who says that and another who says, you know, it was that time you put me in the hospital. The severity is very different. It's very different and you know, the person who sang the worst part was the name he called me. She might have been put in the hospital too. Mm-hmm. But that may not have been the thing that registered as the most hurtful or the most impactful. And so just recognizing that for everybody that can be very different and what seems really, really traumatizing to one person, another person might shrug it off and not really consider that to be terribly traumatic at all. So as advocates, I think a big part of being trauma-informed is recognizing that it is not our job to define the severity of any particular action on the part of a perpetrator or what they've done to a survivor. It is that survivor's to define. And again, that goes back to for, you know, decades and decades, we've been kind of, I don't want to say preaching that, but really sort of, (laughs) right? And But growing to understand that part of the reason for that is that every survivor's worst thing might look really different. And so the next piece that I was looking at of notes talked a lot about culture and cultural influences, you know, a person's sense of belonging. And so in their experiences, their discrimination, their oppression, and we talked a little bit about this certainly in the historical perspective, but, but is this something that, that advocates need to be kind of doing as they're, as they're digging into meaning and they're digging into the survivor's truths and experiences? How do we, how do we feed those questions, those curiosities about culture, I guess, to be able to get a a, a broader understanding of what they've experienced. I mean, it was a mouthful. Sorry. No, it was, well, because it is a, it's such a dance. The process is such a dance, right? Because we also teach advocates, you're not really supposed to ask curiosity questions just because you're curious, right? So, and when I say that, it's like, you know, I'm not supposed to go into a situation where I'm talking to a survivor and I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. It's not gossip, right? right? It's this individual person's real life experience. And so I think at the same time, though, we do have to retain a level of curiosity around knowing and acknowledging what we don't know, right? And so I do think, and it makes me think, I don't know if this is a a super helpful, but I'm going to share it anyway. So I had gone to one of our local, a partner agency that we worked with that helps with refugee resettlement. And we were in a room full of women and they were all, they had all recently immigrated to the U.S. and presumably because they all had refugee status had been through some really terrible things, right? And we were talking to, I want to say there were nine or 10 women in the room and they were all from Africa but from different nations in Africa. And we asked some questions, and this was just an educational thing, but we asked some questions about what we would probably call gender roles in in our culture. (laughs) And things about like something as simple as saying, you know, it's not your obligation to have sex with your husband. And there were some women in the room who were like, 
preach. Absolutely, it's not. And other women in the room who were like, what do you mean it's not my obligation to have sex with my husband? And and so I think sometimes, especially and especially when you start talking about issues related to race and nationality and all this stuff in, in the U.S. in particular, we can sort of think of all black people as a monolith, for example. And so not only were was this a room of black immigrant women, but they were also from different countries with very different perspectives on gender roles. And and so it was a really great example of if I had gone into that, making a, a, a list of assumptions about what, you know, women from a particular continent <laughs> must think about something or women of a particular race, I would have missed you know, half the room and most of the nuance associated with that. So I think just understanding and being open to exploring that. And instead of saying something like, well, it's not your obligation to do X, Y, or Z. I think it's a good reminder to, to ask questions and say, well, what, what did this mean for you? What did that feel like for you? Because we could make assumptions about, oh, that was really awful because da, 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 da. When really that's not why something was really hurtful or or as, difficult for us. As survivor. complex as that seems and as it's kind of overwhelming. Like I can listen to I can hear folks, you know, or pretend to kind of see what's going on in people's minds of like, you know, what are the rules, right? Like yeah. we just want to know this how do I do this? Yeah. What is the groundwork? What do I ask? What do I whatever? But if you can flip that narrative a little bit, it's really much more freeing because you don't have to know everything. Exactly. You don't go into it knowing. You go in it by asking the question. Be mindful how you ask the question. Absolutely. Give people space to be able, like, don't set up the question where you're eliciting a set response, right? right? But ask the question where people really can be honest with what they're feeling about it, what their experience was was with it. Don't put words into their, well, that had to be a terrible experience because it would have been a terrible experience for me. Right. But it might not have been or to the same level, right? The the degree of it. So I hope folks that are listening in don't kind of just have like this mind. Yeah, don't zone out on us. Don't zone out (laughs) and don't have this. Well, I don't think that's the issue, but I think it can be really scary. But this can be so much of the having access to our programs and cultural competency, right? You don't have to know everything about every culture because you won't. Like you just won't. And so ask the questions, keep getting feedback, you know, like your skill is in that, not the end piece, but how you elicit the relationship and the trust building. Well, and so much of it is about creating a space of non-judgment, right? And a space where we diminish the power dynamic because we can't ever eliminate it probably. I I mean, I think that's a tricky thing, but I I don't know that I think we can ever fully eliminate a power differential between, you know, service seeker and service provider really. But creating a space where survivors know that it's okay to let me know if I've gotten it wrong, that it's okay to say, no, that I don't, that's not exactly what it was. Because we're all going to make that step where, you know, occasionally we'll we'll make an assumption or we won't even be aware that we're doing it or whatever. And so the goal is not perfection. Right. The goal is to create a space where survivors can, can where they need to, you know, correct us and or or let us know that there's something more to it or something different that we might not have known about. So I think as long as we're creating that space for conversation, it's okay to mess up. Yeah. Yeah. 
simple things that sort of come to my mind in shelter that happen quite a bit and they can happen again. I, You do it once and you make that mistake and you don't do it again. But just if we can catch it a little bit, I'll, I'll see sometimes someone will come into shelter. This is not really experience talking about their their trauma, well, it could be necessarily, but they might come in and go, you know, just um, found out that I'm pregnant and everybody's like, yay, you know, and then you realize that that might not be a yay moment, you know, for them. And so, or I just got my new apartment and we're like, hooray, we're all going to do this. And then you're like, something's amiss. And you go back and it's like, I've never lived on my own before. I'm terrified of living alone. Even though the shelter is making me crazy, I've had safety, you know, in the shelter or for a myriad of different reasons. I'm worried about my sobriety if I leave, like all those things. And so it's always a weird thing. Thing, but in advocacy world, you begin to start. The people will share news, and then we'll kind of go. And how do you feel about that? Yep. You know, like yep. I find myself doing that all the time, and it's such a strange kind of rapport. But it's the it, it, it leads it with their feelings about the situation yeah. as opposed to my feelings about the situation. Especially yeah. when it's something that that if we know or believe that it's something that we're supposed to have a certain set of feelings about. So if a survivor knows that, like culturally, I'm supposed I'm supposed to be excited about this thing, right? But really, I'm and not. And you don't even think and about it. It's yeah. just the go to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And now you sort of slow yourself down. And it's funny too the the ways that that your advocate life then starts to impact your personal as well in some ways. Cause I can't tell you the number of times that like I have had friends who have been like, I'm pregnant. And now my, my response is, and how do you feel about that? Exactly. You know? Yeah. Or the family leans in to give you a hug and it's like, but did you want a hug? Did you want, did you want yeah. that? Yeah. yeah. I, do I have your permission? Have, yes. Yeah. yeah. I know it so. does. But better safe than sorry. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, you know, at the same time that that we have to recognize that there are all these differences when it comes to culture and how something might affect somebody. I think another thing that's important to remember about culture and trauma is that it also is often a source of some of our greatest strengths. It's often a source of some of our greatest sense of community. So culture does not just impact survivors there are negative and positive implications and sometimes a little bit of both happening all at once. And again, just giving giving space for that to be true, however it's true for each survivor that we're working with is really important. It is. I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, knowing that we're having folks come through our doors, and I don't know if they're coming through our doors now with more complex issues than they did before, or if we're just being aware of them. But I think that trauma lens allows us to respond a little more uh, holistically so that we can take care of the multiple experiences that they they may be having. And it's not just that singular IPV situation that they're having. So domestic violence certainly increases our risk for developing further residual traumas, depression, post-traumatic stress, substance use, kind of knowing that in a in an advocacy preventative space, as well as being aware that these other things are probably co-occurring at the same time. How do you kind of open up those conversations when you're first working with an individual? I mean, I think one of the things that I will do, for example, is to just sort of give some examples of things so that people know, like if I'm working one-on-one with a survivor, I'll give them some examples of things so they know this is a safe place for you to talk about all of this stuff that you might not feel comfortable saying out loud to somebody. So even if it is a matter of just acknowledging, like, you know, a lot of people I've talked to before have really worried about whether or not they are going to be able to pay their bills after 
after this on their own, you know, or sometimes people will talk about how they can't, you know, have sex with anybody now and they don't understand why, you know, or other kinds of things that folks might think of as sort of taboo. I think it can be really good to just open that up as a, as an advocate. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that there are folks from some cultures who are going to be scandalized if you bring those things up. So I think you have to use your judgment and recognize that. When it comes to things in general related to mental health, related to substance use disorders, related to all of those things, I think really part of what it comes down to is to just normalize those things with and for survivors so that they understand that you get that that's not just a them problem. Right. And and to start to to speak to that in a way that destigmatizes it. Um, I think that's one of the things that can be super empowering and important for survivors is they often can come to understand their own challenges in the context of of trauma. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but I have often had survivors say to me, you know, I just feel crazy. I feel like I never struggled with this thing before. Right. Or, you know, I lost my mind about this thing today. I couldn't find my purse. And I don't know why that became such a, you know, I broke down crying. I don't understand what happened. So a lot of times folks don't even, they don't, they're not very gentle with themselves mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, why they're reacting or responding to something in a particular way. So helping survivors to understand that, of course, based on what you've been through, you know, there there are things that you're going to have different responses to. And there are ways to work through that and get back to a place where you feel like more yourself. So I think that's the other really hopeful side is, again, yes, this has probably changed who you are and how you show up in the world. And you get to control what happens now. Absolutely. And normalizing it maybe from the get-go. I, I think, you know, we as advocates spend a lot of time in the beginning of the field and ongoing education to begin to understand this. We're not always the best at explaining what's going to come down the road for the folks that we're working with. So prepare them that they're going to be a little all over the place, that they're going to be upset about things that normally would not have upset them. Now you're living in a community living. That's difficult enough. And yeah. so now you have to deal with lots of different personalities or the noise of children yeah. or you're moving like, what is it we always say that even good change can cause stress. And so yes. you might have to be moving and you might have to be changing locations and all those kinds of things. And so prepare folks for the normalcy of it. There is one piece though, because it's really not in my notes, but because we have the pleasure of having you here. One area that I think we struggle with asking, but it is often in the context of domestic violence is sexual violence. And I, I really implore advocates to not avoid this conversation, not to wait for it to be brought up, not to wait for the victim to share that, but begin to explore that safely mm -hmm. because there is a lot of embarrassment, shame, guilt, hurt, pain that is underlying that. Many of the women and men that we work with don't have to share that information to use our program. But if it's not dealt with, it's just going to sit there. So coming from the sexual assault program, any advice for advocates to, to open up that conversation? Yeah. There's a couple of things I think of. I'm actually thinking back to the, to the Ellen Pence power and control real stuff because yeah, I, Ellen Pence A. Yes. I mean, it makes me think of there, when you think of all those different wedges on the wheel, right? Like we're comfortable talking about financial abuse. We're comfortable talking about physical abuse and emotional abuse. And so sexual violence is a, is a, is one of the wedges on that wheel 
that we, I think, need to grow our comfort around. And so, and I used to be a sex ed teacher. So you and I have had this conversation separately I too, but I, and I am the person that walks into a room and talks about the things that nobody else wants to and talk I'm about. And I'm the worst. Like I'd go, go down the hall, Dr. Jen. <laughs> like, but I also think that, you know, there's, there are times where like, it probably would behoove me to tone it down a bit. And it, because not everybody's going to be comfortable with those topics. And so I think, One of the things that I could recommend for advocates is to start to take a little bit of an inventory and get familiar for yourself with, okay, what does this bring up for me? The idea of talking about sex and specifically sexual violence with my clients, with the survivors that I'm working with, how do I feel about that? Just take stock of it a little bit because I think step one is almost always just building your own awareness of it. And then if you find that you're getting stuck on something and it might be different for everybody, right? For some people, it's just the language, right? Like I'm teaching my three and a half year old little boy how to use terms like vagina and penis and all of these things. But many of us, not in its place for that. Well, and many of us, that was not that. that exactly. That's not how we were raised. So I think just starting to take stock of like, where are your individual spaces of discomfort around this? Is it you know, sex is a private thing in your, in your upbringing or in your family or in your culture. This is just not a thing that you talk about. Or maybe it's a thing that you talk about only with your closest confidants, but you sure as heck don't talk about it with a stranger. And the other thing is, sometimes I think we may impose our discomfort or expectations on survivors. So we might assume that, oh, because this is a little bit taboo or uncomfortable for me, I don't want to make them uncomfortable. Well, they might be just fine talking about it as long as they know you're not going to freak out. Right. Right. So I think, and a lot of it is, um, I think frequently survivors are often testing us, right? And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they have learned to test people. Can I trust you? What are you going to do with this information about me? You know, are you going to judge me? All of those things. And so I think that's a very adaptive thing for survivors. It's often kept them alive, but they're now probably filtering most of their other human interactions through this, you know, through that lens. And so I think just just being as, you know, as non-judgmental and trying to grow our own comfort around it, which is tricky because I think to some extent that has to happen in community, right? Like I I have to have some friends that I can test right. this out with or some colleagues that I can test this out with in terms of like just broaching the subject. Yeah. I'll but, try to be better. I'll practice in the mirror. I could see my husband go, what, what are is you happening? doing? Yeah. But yeah. Just bring me over. Yeah. I'll talk to him. It'll be fine. Okay. Good, good, good. good. (laughs) So we certainly know that people have experienced intimate partner violence, going through a lot of crisis, trauma. We sometimes are left to our own for creating our own coping mechanisms. Yes. Sometimes those are extremely healthy. We're going to go exercise. We're going to be out in nature. We're going to do yoga. We're going to what read. All the things. Make smoothies. That's make smoothies. Do what we need to do. Others. Not so much. And so when we're working with folks and we're seeing coping mechanisms um, that are not as healthy, you know, dangerous, risky behavior, um, substance use, and knowing that there's such a correlation there, thoughts around on that. I mean, I think this, it does connect to some of the other stuff that we were going to talk about in terms of the impact of trauma across the lifespan, right? So if as children, we grew up in relatively safe homes, we weren't experiencing a whole lot of 
disorganization and uncertainty and a general lack of safety, a lot of times we're able to build some resilience to small stressors in a way that we carry into adulthood with us. On the other hand, oftentimes if we've had lots of experiences as kids where where we weren't safe, where we weren't you know, heard, understood, listened to all of these things, then I think a lot of times we don't develop healthy coping. Some of that's also a matter of modeling, right? So what did I observe in terms of how people are coping with stuff as as adults? Do we talk about our feelings? Do we not talk about our feelings? Do we, you know, do I go for a run? Which, and I will say too, I think sometimes we think that there are like healthy coping strategies, but almost anything done to the extreme exactly. can become unhealthy. Good point. Right? Yeah. And so- so we can engage even in what most people consider to be healthy behaviors, but to a disordered extent. I just um, have this image of somebody having a hundred smoothies a day for some reason. So many I just smoothies. was picturing that. Sorry, all the smoothies. I just had to get it out. Well, and to some to some extent, I think that also connects back to this sort of. I think right now there's a, a sort of a cultural discourse around self care that is interesting in the context of of this conversation, but. I think the main thing that I would emphasize for advocates to take away is that in terms of looking at coping mechanisms and and what people use to deal with their realities is that there are a variety of reasons why somebody might choose one coping strategy over another. Coping strategies are not inherently good or bad. They are things that we do to get us through something that feels like it might crush us, right? And so, and I mean, that's true in the context of trauma. It's also how we get through a stressful day at work. Am I going to grab a Snickers or am I going to have a bottle of wine or am I going to, right? Am I going to go for a jog? Yes. And again, all of that in moderation may be fine. But knowing that eventually there are some of our coping strategies become a danger in themselves, Right. And so the things that we're doing to try and deal with the really awful stuff that's going on in our lives starts often to then recreate more awful stuff in our lives. And so I think it's just really approaching that with empathy and and an understanding that there's probably a very good reason why a person has chosen a particular coping strategy. Even if I look at it and I say, well, I, you know, you shouldn't be smoking weed every night. Right. Like I might look at that as a person who hasn't done that and think, well, that's just a bad choice. It may have been the best choice that that individual felt like they had available to them that that accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. And it, and there may very well be value in having a conversation about whether that's the way they want to carry on or not. But you can have that conversation from a very non-judgmental place or you can have that conversation from a place that lets that person know that you are not someone they want to talk to about it again. Yeah. I'm so glad you broke that apart because I do think there is sort of this tendency of us and them, right? And yeah. and this is the unhealthy behavior, but yet we can kind of normalize when we see our own selves and our own friends and our own family. Like we're all a little bit guilty of it. We were talking about Patty Bland a little bit earlier. And one of the things that she sort of broke out was like, okay, you can't have drugs and alcohol in the in the shelter property, right? And you have to turn in many of the programs, you have to turn in your medication and keep them locked up front and all this stuff. And there could be a lot of judgment around that. Yeah. And she said, I dare everybody in here to open up your purse right now. And I want to see what prescription medication that you've got going on in here. And I want you to be the person said you've never shared your prescription medication with someone else because they came in and said their back hurt or they had a headache. So we all can be guilty of these things a little bit. And I, but I like the fact that you said too, that sometimes they're not as, we, we tend to put everything on the level of 
horrible bad, right? You right. know, so so some healthy uh, coping mechanisms aren't the best if they're if they're done to the point of kind of ridiculousness, mm-hmm. and other ones that maybe are not the healthiest. But we're all human, and we can be a little bit messy. But if it's getting in the way, yeah. it's getting in the way of your work and your and yourself and what you want to do and who, how you want to show up every day, yeah. then we need to deal with that, and that's okay. There's no shame in that. We got to recognize it, and then we just sort of need to work together and and kind of come up with a plan on how to support that. Yeah, and I do think I think we probably would be remiss too, especially since so much of this this particular module is also dedicated to thinking about the cultural implications of all these different pieces. Is to recognize that we assign different value to coping mechanisms and strategies to people, in part based on like okay, so if if this wealthy white woman over here is drinking two bottles of wine a night. Well, you know, it's fine. Doesn't she have a fun life? Right. But if somebody who is, you know, struggling to hold down a job and they're working class or poor and they're, you know, like we, we can often look at things through this lens where the behavior itself may be the same, but because people are coming from different places, we assign different judgments or values to it. So I think that is just important to acknowledge that we bring into that as well. Absolutely. And again, the the importance of always having sort of that feedback, checking yourself, working with your team, working with the women, because you do sort of know what you know, and it's really easy to sort of slip into things and you can, you can assign a great deal of different intention onto different behavior. So now that we know trauma trauma-informed approach helps. Can we just sort of run down? I know we're getting a little bit to the end of things, but why does it help? So like I was looking at, it normalizes humans' response to trauma. There was one that I that I really liked, but I'll, I'll let you kind of go through. Oh, it helps to counteract the abuser manipulation and control. I really liked that a great deal, but is there something in those that sort of stand out that you want to make sure people have a come away with? I think... I'll say for me, this was one of the the core things. And if if folks have ever heard uh, of trauma-informed approaches or trauma-informed care, they may have heard this question before. But I think this is one of the sort of most succinct ways to summarize what does it mean to do things from a trauma-informed lens and to say that it shifts our understanding of people's experiences and their symptoms and what they're experiencing. And so instead of asking the question, what's wrong with you, we ask the question, what's happened to you? Perfect. And I think that that... It's a whole different thing, isn't it? And and all of this can sound really complicated, but how simple is that? Yes. Right? To just shift something away from what is wrong with you to what have you been through? What's happened to you? And to do that from a really, you know, just empathetic and non-judgmental place can really be the difference for people between continuing to utilize services that are available to them and, and keep moving forward versus, you know, maybe feeling judged or misunderstood or, you know, all of that stuff. So I think that's a really, um, at its core, kind of captures a a big piece of what trauma-informed care or a trauma-informed approach is about. I do too. It just really sort of shows our humanity Mm -hmm. in the work, just that slight reframe of how we sort of move forward. Because I said frame, but I didn't intentionally do it, but it kind of worked out well. So we're talking about framing issues with trauma and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. I think these are some of the other pitfalls, right, that can kind of happen. So without without these different lenses or or these things, this is what we're at risk of causing. Yeah. If you want to touch a little bit on that. Yeah. So I think, you know, you might look at at other places, for example, that that think they're doing trauma-informed care. 
but they don't have a, a lens of understanding domestic violence and the um, dynamics of domestic violence. And so those instances, things are probably still dangerous for survivors to access, right? So something as simple as understanding the how important confidentiality can be, for example. So like if somebody is going for substance abuse treatment and, you know, the nurse calls and gets the abuser on the line to confirm their appointment without a domestic violence lens, without understanding that that is that that person could be a danger to that survivor, you know, you you create the potential for more harm. So I think that's part of it. Without understanding trauma, we can also, and I, I spoke to this earlier, but we can also re-traumatize people. And some of that is about inadvertently replicating the systems or the dynamics that survivors are trying to escape from. I think, just to hold you on that one, I think that is one of the things that I hear newer advocates say all the time, and it freezes them a little bit. I'm afraid to go into spaces, conversations. I'm afraid to go there because I don't want to re-traumatize someone. But their fear of not asking really can be more detrimental, right? You know, like the not doing the work, the not caring, the not, you know, Digging in there a little bit and building that relationship can cause, I would say, more harm than not. But I do think there is always a fear of re-traumatizing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to some degree that's a, it's a fair concern to have, but so often, at least in my experience, what re-traumatizes survivors is not being given a space to talk about or even having a question asked of them about what's happened. It's what re-traumatizes survivors is when we replicate the dynamics of power and control. Yes. And so I think sometimes we probably don't give survivors enough credit around like they've been living this for a hot minute. Trust that they probably have not forgotten that it was happening. So you asking a question about it is probably in all likelihood not going to be the thing that sends them over the edge, right? That's such a good point, Darlene Thomas. They didn't forget. They know they're a victim of domestic violence or experience that anyways. They know that. You telling them that is not going to traumatized. That's such a good point. Yeah. Or asking Thanks for a, re-saying that. Yeah, yeah. Or asking a question that helps you better meet their needs. That's not going to make it worse. So I think that's a big piece of it. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think sometimes, again, just being willing to approach the topic, sometimes approach the topics that we're uncomfortable talking about. And I think honestly, remembering that even as domestic violence advocates, we're talking about stuff that most people in the world are not comfortable talking about. Right. So like it's just a matter of shifting a little bit and recognizing that like domestic violence is still taboo to most people. This is not a normal thing for people to talk about on a daily basis. Right. And so it becomes normal to us to talk about really hard things. And so all of these other things like cultural competency and sexual violence and all this other stuff, those are just other really hard things that we can we can do. We can do hard. We can do it. So, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You know, it's such a meaty issue. And I think it's something that, you know, really encourage folks that are listening in to, you know, find your your mentor, find your coach, practice the language. You know, I'm trying it to Jen's working with me on a project. I stumble all over the place. I don't know the correct language. And so, you know, you just you're always in a place where you're learning and you're getting in tune. Go to your survivors for their coaching, you know, learn from them. That's where you want to get a big chunk of your your education is just being open and vulnerable and and at a place where you know we continually um, work uh, do things side by side with folks advocate for them and and I think 
the experience that somebody would have using our program would be exponential if we could just show up fully every day with folks. So, Jen, thank you so much for being here today. Glad to do it. Yeah. So you've all been listening to KCADB Certification Series, Module 2. Thanks so much.